The reading this morning is taken from 1 John, chapter 1, starting at verse 1 and running through to verse 2 of chapter 2. That's on page 1225, if you have the church Bible in front of you. 1 John, the incarnation of the word of life. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make your joy complete. Light and darkness, sin and forgiveness. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us all from sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not with us my dear children I write this to you so that you will not sin but if anybody does sin we have an advocate with the father Jesus Christ the righteous one he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours but also for the sins of the whole world. Thanks be to God. Well, thanks, Tom, very much for reading, and good morning to everyone. It's great to see you here. We're taking a little break uh, this week in our um, series in Romans. We'll come back to it in the three uh, following weeks to finish it off before a Christmas series begins. But we're taking a break to really help us to stop and think about remembrance, and we're going to look at a familiar passage to many. Uh, The word disciple means learner. And Jesus had many disciples, learners. And one of the things the disciples had to continually learn was to remember because they kept on forgetting. Uh, And uh, many of us are learners, but we often forget. So let's pray that God would help us this morning uh, to be true disciples, not to forget, but to take away what he wants to teach us. Let's pray together. Loving Heavenly Father, I pray that this morning you would teach us to follow you. And that you would help us to remember 
familiar truths that we look at this morning, that our lives would look different as a result of being obedient to you. And I pray this for your glory's sake. Amen. Can anyone tell me who that fellow there is? Someone said that, I think? Tolkien, brilliant. J.R.R. Tolkien, famous for writing um, um, Lord of the Rings and many other things. <laughs> famous, I nearly forgot. There we go. Perfect illustration. Uh, really good friends with C.S. Lewis who wrote The Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, two years after the end of the Second World War, 1947, he wrote a really important essay. It was called On Fairy Stories. Uh, he was into literature, that was his thing, and he had read all sorts of different types of literature, and he recognised there were two possible responses to stories that you and I will hear. Uh, one way we can respond to stories we hear is to believe they're fiction or know they're fiction, and so we treat them as such. They're nice stories, but there's a kind of distance between the story and us because we know they can't possibly be true. The other type of story is a story that kind of draws us in. You know the sort of stories. The stories that make you feel a part of them. You feel you're there. It's why Disney is so powerful, particularly for young people, because your imagination, your heart is captured by the story and you're drawn in and you wish you were there. And he noticed that there were certain things about these sort of stories that were characteristic of all of them. Often the stories focused on the supernatural. Often the stories in some way were about um, life being snatched from the jaws of death. Uh, evil being overcome by goodness. Love being eternal. You think about some of those things. Aren't they deep longings of every human heart? Uh, the reason that these sort of stories resonate with our heart is because we see stories like that and say, that is the kind of world I want. That is the kind of world I wish that there was. And we see bits of that kind of world, and yet in the brokenness of our world, we often don't see it as we would like. So he finishes his essay by saying, the most popular stories for most people are stories that are very like fairy tales. You take the Christian gospel, particularly the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you think about everything that he has done, everything he said, the gospel story is everything that you and I look for in a story. It resonates with our heart. And when we allow ourselves to be engaged with the story, it can draw us in and can teach us something incredible. More than just teaching us something incredible, it can transform our hearts and minds. But the mistake many people make is many people might look at the gospel story and say, there you go, there's another example of a wonderful story, but it's just like every other story. But the reality that he argues in this essay is that the gospel story isn't just another story, but is the ultimate reality to which all other stories point. And I'm going to help us, I hope, to see that truth this morning. Have a look at the passage. It says there in chapter 1, verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard. Now the we there is John. And he's referring to himself and the other apostles. John was a disciple of Jesus. He wrote John's gospel. Later in his life, he wrote three letters towards the end of the Bible, 1, 2, and 3 John. Uh, these were letters that were designed to help the early church. And notice what he says. He and the others who were there said, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, seen with our eyes, which we've looked at, and our hands have touched so this isn't a fairy tale. This is something tangible. This man was there. And notice what he says. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. 
The life appeared. We've seen it and testify to it. Whenever you have good news about anything, you proclaim it, don't you? You never keep it to yourself. You always want to proclaim it. And notice what the good news is that he wants to share and proclaim. We proclaim to you the eternal life. Well, there you've got your fairy tale. It's the kind of story you would love to be true, but you probably struggle to believe is true. Eternal life, really? He's proclaiming to us a fairy tale. But notice the reason he wants to proclaim to us this so-called fairy tale. It says, verse 3, so that you also may have fellowship with us. That's a phrase that really means, so that you share in our joy. So that John is saying, something has happened to me that has so transformed my life, I cannot possibly keep it to myself. I need to proclaim it. Uh, so when Simon and Madeline had their new baby boy, they didn't keep it to themselves. They wanted to proclaim it. And they share around their baby boy. We get to see him. We get to play with him. We share in their joy. Uh, when some of you teenagers sit those horrible exams at school and you get really good marks and you're really pleased, you want to tell people. Teenagers often ring up grandparents because grandparents seem to reward teenagers with money when they do well in exams. You know how it works, but you want to proclaim the good news of what you have experienced, what's happened to you. Uh, When Elliot is rewarded for getting up at five every morning and he gets his job promotion, he will come and proclaim it to us, no doubt. If you get good news from a doctor, you don't keep it to yourself, you share it. And that's exactly what John's doing here. Something has happened in his life that has so moved his mind and moved his heart He has to declare it. He has to proclaim it. But notice, more than just wanting other people to share in their joy, what does it say at the end of verse 3? Also, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So what the Apostle is saying is, I want you to know the joy that I've experienced, but let me tell you a bit more about what lies at the heart of that joy. It's a relationship with God. It's knowing God personally. And it's when we come to know God personally that verse 4 becomes true. We write this, John says, to make our joy complete. And then he goes on, verse 5, he says, listen, let me spell this message out. This is the message. It's almost like he's going to declare now with great force and great joy the message that he wants us all to hear. And he declares this. It's almost like this bold headline you get on the front page of the Times. God is light in him There is no darkness at all. And again, maybe you see that as a bit of a fairy tale. You wish it were true, but you couldn't possibly believe that's true. Is God really light? Is there really no darkness in him at all? The Bible tells us time and time again that God is good. And yet I've met a number of people in recent years who've said things to me like, I couldn't believe in a God who will allow trouble and injustice to continue indefinitely. Um, I couldn't believe in a God who turns a blind eye to suffering and it doesn't bother him. I couldn't believe in a God who's a killjoy and is out to steal my fun. Do you know what I would say to those people? Nor could I. And nor do I. Often when we have a wrong view of God, the problem doesn't lie with God and his ability to communicate and show to us what he is like. The problem lies with us. Uh, A number of years ago, I did a short chaplaincy stint in a prison in North London. Uh, It was a real eye-opener. Walking in, it was a Category 3B prison, which is called often a holding prison, where quite um, serious criminals move through this prison, and they're held there until they move to a higher security prison or somewhere they're going to be long-term. It was my first experience in prison. Um, It's everything I expected it to be, a lot of concrete 
and lots of iron and a really difficult place to be. I walked in. It was really intimidating. Just, I was in a men's prison, just men staring at me. Uh, I don't know why, but a lot of them actually apparently thought I was a policeman, so that made me feel a little bit safer when I heard that. Uh, but I spent a bit of time talking to prisoners, and all sorts of conversations went on. Uh, some of the prisoners recognized the wrong that they had done, and they had showed great remorse for what they had done, and they were longing to be released and to transform their life. Uh, but this particular prison, 80% of people in this prison reoffend and come back. It was desperately sad. And I remember talking to one or two individuals. What broke my heart is that their hearts had become, it seemed, so calloused and hard that they couldn't recognize that they'd done anything wrong. I spoke to a man who had um, performed a number of crimes, particularly shoplifting, and stolen thousands of pounds worth of precious goods. I spoke to a man who had murdered his wife. I remember speaking to another man who had been multiply convicted for child abuse of the most serious nature. It was absolutely horrific standing before these men. But what shocked me more than the crimes they committed is for two of them particularly, they had no sense in their heart that they'd really done anything wrong. At least that's what they said. Well, notice verse 8. You and I may not be hardened criminals in prison. We may not have done some of the horrific things they have done. But I hope and pray that we can all see that we've done some things wrong. In fact, many things. And John the writer wants us to be clear of that. So he spells it out quite clearly. He says, listen, if you claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Remember what I said earlier. It's not about a wrong view of God. It's more about a wrong view of ourself, which leads to a wrong view of God. He says, if we confess our sins, though, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That really means everything within us that is not right. That word sin is a funny word. It really means an attitude deep in our hearts that says, shove off God. It's my life. I want to do things my way. I don't want to acknowledge that you're the creator. It's even an attitude that takes for granted the fact that every breath that you breathe, every beat of your heart, is a gift that he has given. It's really an attitude of autonomy, And John wants to challenge that. And he says, verse 10, If we claim we have not sinned, we make God out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. Now think back to the kind of stories that you love to hear, the the films you like to watch. One of the sort of things that often we love watching are films or stories with battles in. Why? Because so often good triumphs over evil. But the biggest battle that's ever been fought wasn't the Somme in the First World War, It wasn't the Battle of Britain in the Second World War. The biggest battle that has ever been fought and continues to be fought is actually the battle for your heart and the battle for my heart. And it's a battle that's going on in spiritual heavenly places. Think about some of these individuals I was describing from prison. If you were there in the prison, when you hear of terrible things that people have done, you probably please that they are locked away where they can't be a danger to themselves and to other people. But what do you demand? We live in a democracy. makes mistakes, but we live in a democracy and we should thank God for that. What do you demand when you see evil, when you see people in prison? You demand justice. Of course you do. Because that's built into what it means to be a human being. It's built into also the character of God. We demand justice and rightly so. Does anyone know what that is? Good. The scales of justice. 
on top of the Old Bailey or Justice Hall. These were put there in 1674. They've been there a long time. The scales of justice. And this is the highest criminal court in this country where major trials have taken place over the years. Now notice if I zoom in a bit closer, what is going on here? In the one hand, there's these scales, almost weighing the wrong that a person might have done. In the other hand, is a sword. And what happens when the good and bad is weighed and is found wanting? Well, it's the the sword of justice that comes down on the criminal. And in this country, that often leads them to go to prison. And we thank God for the justice system that we have. But if you step back from some of the crimes that these individuals in prison have committed, and you think about your relationship to a God who gave you every breath that you breathe, every beat of your heart, all the different attitudes of your heart and my heart that have turned our backs on God, if they were weighed in those scales, what would be the right response from a perfect, loyal, loving God? The perfect, right response would be that his sword of justice falls on you. The right response would be that that sword of justice falls on me. Now you're probably wondering, you started off by talking about the gospel being like a fairy tale. You've spoken about the joy that this John wanted us to understand. This coming into a relationship with God. And now you're talking about justice. What's all that about? Well notice, in the mess that we can get ourselves into, notice how John goes on. Right at the end of his letter, he says in chapter 5, I write these things, that's the letter, that you may know that you have eternal life. The letter of 1 John is really a letter of assurance. So how is it we can get from this place of feeling and acknowledging that we deserve the justice of God to the end of the letter where he's proclaiming great assurance for the people who trust in him? Well, let's have a look. Go back to chapter 2. Notice the word that becomes a kind of hinge that changes everything. It's the word but, chapter 2, verse 1. Yes, there's this terrible truth which convicts our hearts, but... And then John goes on to describe it. Uh, Many of you will have heard of Mark Twain, who was um, a famous uh, author in America uh, in the 19th century. In the end of the 19th century, he wrote uh, stories like um, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Many of us would have read them as children. He describes love in one of his places he writes. He describes love as the irresistible desire to be irresistibly desired. In some ways, that's quite a selfish definition of love, isn't it? But doesn't that actually represent often where your heart is at? There's something about being a human being. We have this irresistible desire. We long to be loved, but loved perfectly, loved consistently. We long to be irresistibly desired. We'll go into chapter 2 because the incredible truth is, and maybe you find this very hard to believe, that is true of what God thinks when he looks at you. Every single one of you. Have a look at chapter 2, verse 1. It goes on and says, If anyone does sin, we have an advocate. In a law court, an advocate would be someone who speaks on behalf of another person. We have an advocate with the Father, God the Father. And who is he? God the Son, Jesus Christ. The righteous one. And our advocate, the Lord Jesus Christ, when he speaks on our behalf in front of a perfect holy God, he's not there pleading our innocence, because he knows full well that we're not innocent. 
I hope if we ever stood before God, we wouldn't plead our innocence because we can recognize that we're not innocent. What does he do? He's an advocate in the sense that he stands before his heavenly father and says, do not punish them because remember you punished me instead. An irresistible desire to be irresistibly desired. That's exactly what is going on at the cross. And that is described in chapter 2 verse 2. It speaks of Jesus being the atoning sacrifice for our sins. To understand this funny word, atonement, um, you need to think back to a book in the Old Testament, a funny uh, book called Leviticus. It's called such because one of the main characters or group of characters in the book of Leviticus are the Levites. They're the priests. And the book of Leviticus is all about how can a holy God, a perfect God, know an unholy, imperfect people. And in chapter 16, right at the heart of this book, you have this description of what was called the Day of Atonement. All sorts of sacrifices took place in the life of God's people. But once a year, there was this special year, the Day of Atonement. Today, the Jewish people celebrate this as Yom Kippur. And what happened on this day is there were two goats. One goat was slaughtered and placed on an altar and burned for the sins of God's people. And it was a pretty gruesome affair. Sorry about the graphic picture. I've uh, tried to take off at least the front end so it's not quite so graphic. But this is the kind of scene you see on a Day of Atonement. What is there? There's death. Here is a goat that has been slaughtered and there's blood everywhere. The stench would have been horrendous on this Day of Atonement. But the point was, it was trying to remind God's people that rebellion against God leads to death. Something or someone has to die in its place. There was a second goat. And what happened is the high priest came and laid his hands on the goat, confessing the sins of the people, and sent the goat off into the wilderness where it would die. It's where our word scapegoat comes from. It's exactly that. And yet there was a big problem. You go to a letter in the New Testament called Hebrews. The writer says, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And think about it. How can the death of a goat pay for all the rebellion of every human being who's ever lived. It just doesn't make any sense. It didn't actually pay for sin. All it did was acknowledge before God a repentant heart for a period, but it never dealt with the problem. It never ultimately dealt with the problem. But that is where the person of the Lord Jesus Christ is completely different. Do you notice in verse 1 of chapter 2? He is described as the righteous one, in whom there is no wrong, who never did anything wrong, who loved his heavenly father, with all of his heart, his mind, his soul, and his strength. And yet he went willingly to the cross to die. The only person who didn't deserve for the justice of God's sword to fall on him, the only person, yet he willingly gave his life and hung on a cross. It's the ultimate sacrifice. And why did he do it? Because he made you to have an irresistible desire to be irresistibly desired. And his desire for you is irresistible to him. He's so passionate about every human being he created. He wants to have that relationship. Which is why John's exactly right at the beginning of his letter. He says, I want you to know the joy I've experienced in coming into a relationship with the God who made me. You saw it in chapter 1 verse 2, didn't you? He wants us to know eternal life. You saw it in chapter 1 verse 3. He wants us to know him. Have a think about that word atonement. 
when Jesus died on the cross, he is atoning for the sins of the whole world. And what does that atonement achieve? If you break the word down, God wants us to be at one with him. He wants us to be at peace with him. But a perfect God and an imperfect people cannot be at peace with one another unless there is death and punishment. I said at the beginning that, as Tolkien remarked, the most popular stories that you and I all love tend to be like the fairy stories. Well, as you stop and reflect on this day of remembrance, when Jesus died on the cross, it was the ultimate act of remembrance. It's right and proper that today we stand and remember those who've given up their lives to give us freedom. But they were only able to do it, however big the sacrifice, for that generation. Not for everyone who has ever lived. And yet that is where the difference comes, when the righteous one dies in the place of you and I. He didn't just die for a generation. He didn't just die for good people, because such people do not exist in God's eyes. He died for everyone that God created, because he has this irresistible desire to know you. As we close, just have a look at the second half of verse 2. Speaking of Jesus, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, but not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. That word world there is really reinforcing and reflecting on uh, the mess, the rebellion, the unbelief of the world. It was while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. John here isn't saying there's automatic forgiveness. Because Jesus died, there's automatic forgiveness for everyone. If you read end of um, 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 to 13, it makes that very clear. It wasn't an automatic death that paid for everyone, but it is sufficient for all who will trust in him. So I want to commend to you that this incredible story that seems like a fairy story, that when we engage with it, draws us in, we want to become a part of the story. It's not just another story pointing to some other ultimate reality. It is the ultimate reality to which all other stories point. There's a very good reason why there is a longing in every human heart to be loved. Because that is the way God has designed you. And God has met that irresistible desire perfectly in the work of his son. And I hope and pray that each one of us will know that in our hearts today as well as in our heads. Amen.